Welcome to the GDPR Weekly Show, one of the top five GDPR podcasts worldwide. Here is what's coming up in this week's episode. Welcome to episode 219 of the GDPR Weekly Show, the number one GDPR podcast worldwide. And coming up in this week's episode, we have news that there are fears that the Conservative leaders' election here in the UK could be infiltrated by hostile countries, thinking particularly towards the current time of Russia, but other countries like North Korea too, because of the need to rush the voting process, which is to be all online for the first time. We then have news of a data breach at Ticketmaster, and we then have news that the data breach whistleblower at NatWest is demanding that the bank pay their data controller fee to the ICO. We then have news that Clearview AI has been fined another 20 million euros by CNIL, the French Data Protection Commissioner. And we then travel to Lexington in Kentucky in the USA, where NowNet has had a data breach. We then return to the UK, where Nadim Zahawi has said that UK businesses must do more to boost their cyber defences. With that in mind, the National Cyber Security Service has issued five steps that organisations can follow to improve the security of their supply chain. We then travel to Ireland, where Media House has settled several data breach claims. And then to California where California Pizza Kitchen has reached a lawsuit settlement after a data breach. We then have news that estate agents are judged to be presenting a real data risk. We then return to Australia, where victims of the Optus data breach now find that they can't use their passport details online. And remaining in Australia, we have news of a data breach at retailer MyDeal. We then return to the UK, where the UK court has indicated a de minimis settlement when there is no proven material harm in a data breach. We then return to Australia, where Medibank has had a data breach. And then finally back to the UK, where the ICO has simplified the use of binding corporate rules. So there's always a wide range of articles for you this week. We hope you find the information in the articles useful and informative. If you do have any feedback for us, please do email us at feedback at gdprweeklyshow.com. Wish there was a simple guide to GDPR? Well, now there is. GDPR made simple. Available now on Amazon. With the news this week, the Liz Truss stood down as the UK Prime Minister after only 45 days, and we are now to have an election within the Conservative Party of a new Conservative Party leader, and therefore a new Prime Minister within the next seven days, and possibly as soon as Monday. Fears have been expressed that Russia could have stooges ready to tip the balance of the Tory leadership race if it goes to an online vote. GCHQ has also said that it is worried that there are fears of an online strike. One of the problems is that no one's quite sure how many members the Conservative Party has, with estimates ranging from 180,000 to 200,000. And part of that reason is because the party's website has a membership option called Conservatives Abroad, which says anyone living anywhere in the world is welcome to join Conservatives Abroad from just £25 a year. And that £25 a year does get you a vote in the leadership contest. While many overseas Tory voters are probably going to be legitimate UK citizens or expats, Others could be stooges by Russia or North Korea or any other rebel nation. Observers have pointed out that the margin last time was low and it would not take many votes to swing it in one direction or the other. The National Cyber Security Centre, the NCSC, part of GCHQ, said the process was vulnerable to interference, forcing the party to delay sending out ballot slips. Those opting to cast their vote online had to submit a single-use code and answer security questions. This time around, of course, it's only going to be online, so it's not quite certain how that process is going to work. If the party are going to be able to do it in time for a vote to be declared on Friday, when the candidates won't be known until Monday afternoon. 
A spokesperson for National Cyber Security Centre said defending UK democratic and electoral processes is a priority for the National Cyber Security Centre and we work closely with all parliamentary political parties, local authorities and MPs to provide cyber security guidance and support. As the UK's National Technical Authority for Cyber Security, we continue to provide advice to the Conservative Party, including on security considerations for online leadership voting. We did contact the Conservative Party yesterday for a comment, but at the time of going to broadcast, no one has come back to us. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. If you already listened to the GDPR Weekly Show, then you will have heard us talk about previous data breaches at Ticketmaster in episodes 38 and 117. This week, there's been another security breach at Ticketmaster. Ticketmaster has revealed that it suffered a major security breach after being hit in a cyber attack last night. Thousands of UK customers may have been infected by the breach, which is reportedly caused by malicious software on third-party customer support product Inventor Technologies. Obviously, the story is only just breaking, and so we've reached out to Ticketmaster and Inventor for comments, and when we receive them, we will talk and bring them to you, hopefully, in next week's episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. For those real long-time listeners of the GDPR Weekly Show, you might remember that back in episode 54, we brought you reports of a data breach at RBS, the Royal Bank of Scotland, and then NatWest, which it was claimed had been covered up for over 10 years. Well, this week, the former Royal Bank of Scotland worker who blew the whistle on the bank's lax data protection practices, and to this day, he says they still have thousands of sensitive customer data files under their bed, is demanding that Royal Bank of Scotland parent NatWest Group pay for a data controller fee. The whistleblower and the NatWest Group are yet to reach an agreement on the return of the 1,600 paper-based customer files to the bank, some of which contain sensitive data of current customers. As with any data controller with a small volume of customers, she needs to pay the Information Commissioner's Office annual registration fee of £40 by the 26th of October or will face a potential fine. The whistleblower, who has the data as a result of a work-from-home agreement with the bank from over a decade ago, became a data controller when it became clear that the data, which includes sensitive information of current NatWest customers, would be in her home indefinitely. She wants NatWest to take the documents, but they have not been returned because she wants guarantees that no future action by the customers involved will be taken against her. She was advised to obtain a receipt from the bank for all the files before handing back the information to protect herself from possible future litigation. The ICO letter demanding payment of the fee said, if you don't pay the direct fee, you could be fined up to £4,350. We will begin this process 21 days after your registration expires if we don't hear from you first. We publish details of all the fines we issue on our website. In an email to NatWest Chief Executive Alison Rose, the former RBS worker wrote, I should bring to your attention the fact that I recently received a notification from the ICO to renew my registration as a data controller. I'm required to pay a data protection fee for the renewal by 26th of October 2022. As I'm still doing the bank's job of protecting this confidential customer data, as I've been doing for so many years now, I don't think it would be unreasonable for me to ask you to confirm on behalf of the bank that the bank will be reimbursing me the registration fee. NatWest said it has not replied to the former worker, who said she's frustrated and wants closure. The bank has maintained that it wants the files returned, but will not agree to the conditions demanded by the whistleblower to protect her from future potential action from the bank's customers. NatWest has claimed the data is historic and there has been no customer detriment, but the whistleblower claims she's established that some of the data files relating to existing customers and informed the bank and the ICO. She said, I have put to the test the bank's assertion that this data is historical and that it poses no risk to customers, and I've established that some of the data is live existing customers I immediately informed the bank and the ICO of this. 
She is currently in contact with the regulator, the Financial Conduct Authority, to arrange a meeting where she will present evidence of the data she holds with a 72-page document which was put together with the help of the ICO. To give a bit of background, in 2006, the data was sent to the worker's home as part of a work arrangement in breach of data protection rules. The worker was given the opportunity to work from home and on the bank's instructions used customer banking information to help her generate mortgage and loans business. Over three years, she received thousands of paper documents, about 1,600 of which are still stored in her home. When the worker became concerned the arrangement could breach data protection rules, she put everything in writing to her manager and inadvertently blew the whistle on the bank's lax data security practices. The former worker was sacked by the bank in 2009 and has been calling on the bank to collect the files ever since. In 2012, the ICO investigated the case and slapped the bank's wrist over the arrangement. The ICO said that while the incident was a local issue at branch level, RBS did not maintain compliance with the seventh data protection principle during the period in question. It said both parties were made aware of this decision, no further action was taken by the office, and the case was closed and remains closed. The ICO worked with both parties from 2012 to secure the safe return of the files, but the negotiations failed and the ICO ended its involvement in July 2021. We've approached NatWest for comment, but by the time we're going to broadcast, no one from the bank has come back to us. Contact us on helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com. Another company which features regularly here on the GDPR Weekly Show is Clearview. Clearview AI has appeared in episodes 99, 169, 175, 186, 197 and 205. And now Clearview AI, the controversial facial recognition firm that scrapes selfies and other personal data off the internet without consent, has been fined again for failing to respond to an order last year from CNIL, the French Information Commissioner. The order from CNIL told Clearview to stop its unlawful processing of French citizens' information and delete their data. Clearview responded to that order by, well, doing nothing really, thereby adding a third GDPR breach, non-cooperation with the regulator, to its early tally. Here is CNIL's summary of Clearview's breaches. Unlawful processing of personal data, a breach of Article 6 of GDPR. Individuals' rights not respected, Articles 12, 15 and 17 of GDPR. And lateral cooperation with the CNIL, Article 31 of GDPR. Clearview had two months to comply with the injunctions formulated in the formal notice and to justify them to CNIL. However, it did not provide any response to this formal notice. CNIL wrote in a press release announcing the sanction. The chair of the CNIL therefore decided to refer the matter to the Restricted Committee, which is in charge of issuing sanctions. On the basis of the information brought to its attention, the Restricted Committee decided to impose a maximum financial penalty of €20 million Euros according to Article 83 of GDPR. As you will probably know, GDPR allows for penalties of up to 4% of a firm's worldwide annual revenue, or €20 million, Euros, whichever is the higher. But Senior's press release makes it clear that it's imposing the maximum amount it possibly can in this particular case. Of course, whether France will ever see a penny of this money from Clearview is another question. The US-based company has been issued with a slew of penalties by the data protection agencies across Europe in recent months, including €20 million Euro fines from Italy and Greece, and a smaller penalty from the ICO here in the UK. But it's not clear it has ever handed over any money to any of these authorities, and they have limited resources and legal means to pursue Clearview for payment outside of their own borders. Clearview's PR agency, LAC PR Group, said in a statement, There is no way to determine if a person has French citizenship purely from a public photo on the internet, and therefore it's impossible to delete data from French residents. Clearview AI only selects publicly available information from the internet, just like any other search engine like Google, Bing or DuckDuckGo. The statement goes on to reiterate earlier claims by Clearview that it does not have a place of business in France or indeed in the EU. 
nor does it undertake any activities that would otherwise mean it is subject to GDPR. It says ClearView's AI database of publicly available images is lawfully collected, just like any other search engine like Google. Now, of course, in theory at least, GDPR has extraterritorial reach, so its former arguments are meaningless, while its claim of not doing anything that would make it subject to GDPR simply just looks absurd. The statement continues with another much-trotted-out claim in ClearView's public statements, responded to the flow of regulatory sanctions its business attracts that created its facial recognition tech, with the purpose of helping to make communities safer and assisting law enforcement in solving heinous crimes against children, seniors and other victims of unscrupulous acts, not to cash in by unlawfully exploiting people's privacy. Not that, in any case, having a pure motive would make any difference to its requirement under European law to have a valid legal basis to process people's data in the first place. A statement went on to say, We only collect public data from the open internet and comply with all standards of privacy and law. I'm heartbroken by the misrepresentation by some in France, where we do no business, of Clearview AI's technology to society. My intention and those of my company have always been to help communities and their people to live better, safer lives. Whilst it may claim it has a right to ignore fines from European regulators, Clearview has not been absent from receiving fines from regulators in the USA. Earlier this year, it agreed to settle a lawsuit that had been accused of running afoul of an Illinois law banning the use of individuals' biometric data without their consent. The settlement included Clearview agreeing to some limits on its ability to sell its software to most US companies, but it still trumpeted the outcome as a huge win claiming it would be able to circumvent the ruling by selling its algorithm, rather than the access to the database, to private companies in the US. If we get any further update on this from Clearview or from CNIL, we will, of course, bring it to you in the next available episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. Wish there was a simple guide to GDPR? Well, now there is. GDPR Made Simple. Available now on Amazon. To Lexington in Kentucky in the USA now, and a student loan servicing technology, NowNet Servicing, reported a data breach disposing personal information of students with loans from Oklahoma Student Loan Authority, OSLA, and Ed Financial. While this breach is not involved with any University of Kentucky systems, UK Information Technology Services, UKITS, would like to make students aware of the potential limitations of the breach. Further investigation of the NowNet services breach indicates the student loan information of over 2.5 million individuals was exposed. The information includes full name, physical address, email address, phone number and social security number. It did not include any financial information. If you were impacted by this breach, it means that bad actors could use your information for subsequent attacks like phishing, social engineering, impersonation and various scamming schemes. If your information was exposed by this breach, you should have received a notification from OSLA or Ed Financial. UKITS recommends remaining diligent in protecting yourself from identity fraud and to be closely monitoring bank accounts and financial statements. Enabling two-factor authentication for any accounts that offer it is strongly encouraged. Regular checking credit reports is also advised. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. UK businesses must start taking cybercrime more seriously and should do more to boost their cyber defences, according to Nadim Zahawi, the Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster and the UK government's lead minister for cyber security. This includes working more closely with the government to better protect UK companies and re economic growth of the nation, Zahawi said. His words come just a few days after Sir Jeremy Fleming, director of GCHQ, warned that fear is driving the Chinese state to manipulate the tech ecosystem and threaten global security. Speaking this week, Zahawi said that UK businesses need to stop thinking of cybersecurity as an issue just for company IT departments and treat it as a business priority, saying it is now a board-level problem that must be met with board-level intervention. 
He also highlighted the importance of cybersecurity to the wider UK economy, urging companies to tighten cyber defences and stating it's not possible to achieve economic growth without economic security in a digital world. It is clear from the number of businesses that have suffered cyber attacks that this is an area of vulnerabilities, the Harvey added. So my message to businesses is clear. Work more closely with us on building skills, training and online defences, which will all have a positive impact on the success of your companies and will in turn help us deliver our ambitious plan to increase economic possibility and put more money in people's pockets. Zahawi is set to chair a new National Cyber Advisory Board as part of the UK Government's National Cyber Strategy 2022. The board will bring together leaders from academia, industry and the third sector from across the UK, allowing government to hear alternative viewpoints and harness networks from across the cyber ecosystem, mobilising them to support delivery across all five pillars of the strategy. Speaking at this year's annual security lecture, GCH2 Director Sir Jeremy Fleming warned that the Chinese Communist Party, the CCP, had a fear of losing its grip on power, its people and the international rules-based system, but because of that, it's threatening both UK and global security. He said that China has deliberately and patiently set out to gain strategic advantage by shaping the world's technology ecosystems, potentially impacting issues critical to the UK's well-being, including intelligence, cyber operations and economic growth. I'm clear that we have no issue with the nation of China rising up to meet its potential, and we certainly have no issue with the people of China and the Chinese community who contribute hugely to life here in the UK. The UK wants to compete and to collaborate with a strong China. Fleming said. However, it is how that strength is used, or indeed misused, by the Chinese Communist Party that is at the heart of the issues we face, he added. We must also be clear that when it comes to technology, the politically motivated actions of the Chinese state is an increasingly urgent problem we have to acknowledge and address. That's because it's changing the definition of national security in a much broader concept. Technology has become not just an area for opportunity, for competition and for collaboration, it's become a battleground for control, values and influence. In an increasingly complex and interconnected world, this was a major risk to our future security and prosperity, Fleming continued, and without the effective action of like-minded allies, the divergent values of the Chinese state will be exported through technology. Continuing from the theme of our previous article, the National Cybersecurity Centre has issued new guidance on five distinct stages to help organisations effectively assess the cybersecurity of their supply chains. They say the first step, before you start really, is to understand why your organisation should care about supply chain cybersecurity, identify the key players in your organisation and understand how your organisation evaluates risk. The outputs from this stage should include better understanding of the threats to your supply chain based on the nature of the relationship you have with your suppliers and the access they have to your systems and services, establishment of a team to develop a new approach to assessing supply chain cybersecurity and senior management buy-in to implement any changes, and increased understanding of existing risk appetites and processes within your organisation. They then move on to step two, which is to develop an approach to assess supply chain cybersecurity. Once you've determined the critical aspects of your organisation that you need to protect the most, create a repeatable, consistent approach for assessing the cybersecurity of your suppliers. This includes prioritise your organisation's crown jewels, i.e. what's really important to you, create a set of security profiles, determine the security profile of each supplier, define the minimum cybersecurity requirements for each security profile, decide how to assess your suppliers, plan for non-compliance, and create contractual clauses. Outputs from this stage should include a clear understanding of the most critical aspects of your organisation with criteria for determining what assurances you need from suppliers to be able to protect them, questions for determining the security profile of each supplier, and a supplier security management plan to track compliance with cybersecurity requirements. 
Then we're on to step three, which is applying the approach to any new supplier relationships. Embed new security practices throughout the contract lifestyle new suppliers, from procurement and supply selection through to contract closure, the NCSC advises. This should focus on educating teams to ensure the people involved in assessing suppliers are aware of the threats posed, understand their role in reducing the risk, and the process that you have defined for your organisation. It should also involve embedding cyber security controls throughout the contract's duration, from decision to outsource, supplier selection, contract awards, supply delivery to termination, along with regular mentoring of supplier performance and reporting of progress to the board. Expect the outputs are embed cyber security practices throughout the acquisition process, supported by a multidisciplinary team of cyber security trained professionals, increase awareness of supply chain threats amongst your staff, and measure performance against defined metrics visible to board members. Then, of course, it comes to step four, integrating the framework into your existing contracts. With a new approach in place, review your existing contracts, either upon renewal or sooner where critical suppliers are concerned, then the NCSE advises. This should include identifying existing contracts, assess the risk of the contract, support your suppliers, and review any contractual clauses. As with step three, this stage should involve regular mentoring your supplier performance through reporting your progress to the board. Expect the outputs into the register, recording all suppliers, identification of suppliers with security shortfalls, and an improved approach based on any lessons learned. And then step five, it says to simply strive for continuous improvement. Periodically refining your approach as new issues emerge will reduce the likelihood of risk being introduced into your organisation via the supply chain. Three key aspects here are to evaluate the framework and its components regularly, maintain awareness of evolving threats, and update practices accordingly, and make sure you collaborate with your suppliers all with the aim of establishing a foundation for continuous improvement. Contact us on helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com To Southern Ireland now and Media House Ireland, the publisher formerly known as Independent News and Media, INM, has moved to settle many of the claims made against it by the so-called INM19, a cohort of people with various links to the company whose emails were illegally accessed in a data breach in 2014. It has also moved to settle some of the claims made by certain current and former editors within the group who alleged that their private data was improperly accessed without their knowledge in data breaches separate to the one concerning the IMN-19. Media House, which declined to comment, is understood to have set aside about €10 million Euros to settle the list of data cases, including the INM-19 breach, which was later found to be illegal by the Data Protection Commission, the DPC, and involved technical consultants secretly scouring journalist emails. Several high-profile names among the INM-19 are understood to have settled in recent weeks. They include INM's former chief executive, Vincent Crowley, and Sam Smythe, a former star columnist at the Irish Independent, who is believed to have settled for a large six-figure sum. Other settlements cost in media house more than €100,000 each, including legal fees, are believed to have been reached with public relations executives Mark Kenny, Jonathan Nealon, Harriet Manser, and Jennifer Kilroy, who are members of the INM-19. So this is Simon McLeese, who represents many of the INM19 and also sued INM himself, is also believed to have been approached to settle by Media House. He declined to make any comment. Media House has approached several other members of the INM19 with offers of settlement, but agreement has not been reached. This cohort is believed to include Rory Dodson, a former Sunday Times Ireland editor and now a public relations executive. Media House is also believed to have settled with former INM Group Editor-in-Chief Stephen Ray, whose data was allegedly improperly accessed in a separate breach, as well as Tom McGinty, the former Sunday World Editor, who did not formally sue but made a complaint. Other members of the INM-19 are still proceeding with their claims. These include INM's former Chief Executive Gavin O'Reilly and its former Corporate Affairs Chief Carl Brophy, 
whose case is listed for discovery next month. Media House inherited the claims after it bought IM from shareholders, including Dennis O'Brien in 2019, the year after High Court inspectors were appointed to investigate the IM19 data breach. The state's director of corporate enforcement, Ian Drennan, alleged in court documents that the data breach was overseen by former IM chairman Leslie Bashley, who was Mr. O'Brien's representative on the board. Mr. Buckley has also been sued by most of the IM19, as well as by the company, over his involvement. He's denied any wrongdoing and declined to comment. The High Court Inspector's report on the issue is expected to be released in the coming month. Welcome to the GDPR Weekly Show, one of the top five GDPR podcasts worldwide. Here is what's coming up in this week's episode. To California now, and California Pizza Kitchen have agreed to a class action lawsuit settlement to resolve claims it failed to prevent a 2021 data breach. The settlement benefits people whose information was compromised in the California Pizza Kitchen data breach announced in November 2021 and who received a notice regarding the breach. The settlement includes a subclass of California consumers. In November 2021, California Pizza Kitchen announced it was the subject of a data breach in September 2021 that compromised the social security numbers of over 100,000 former and current employees, according to sources. Affected consumers quickly took legal action against California Pizza Kitchen, arguing that the company failed to protect their information through reasonable cyber security measures. The data breach class action lawsuit contends that clearly CPK failed to safeguard plaintiffs and the class members' PII, personally identifiable information, and unreasonably delayed to inform them of the data breach. Plaintiffs and the class members have suffered injury because of California Pizza Kitchen's conduct. The plaintiffs note that the information was listed on the dark web for sale to criminals and is likely still to be available. This, in addition to other consequences of the data breach, will allegedly put plaintiffs and class members at risk for fraud and identity theft for years to come. California Pizza Kitchen hasn't admitted any wrongdoing, but agreed to a class action settlement to resolve these claims. The exact settlement amount has not been disclosed in the court documents. Under the terms of the California Pizza Kitchen lawsuit settlement, class members can receive reimbursement for out-of-pocket expenses. The settlement allows class members to claim up to $1,000 in out-of-pocket expenses such as bank fees, communication charges, credit expenses and up to three hours of lost time at a rate of $20 per hour. Class members can also claim up to $5,000 in extraordinary out-of-pocket expenses, such as documented unreimbursed fraudulent charges tied to the data breach. Members of the California subclass can collect an additional $100, subject to the $1,000 for ordinary out-of-pocket expenses. All class members can receive 24 months of free credit monitoring. Class members who enrolled for 12 months of credit monitoring from California Pizza Kitchen's original notice letter will have 24 months of monitoring added to their existing 12-month term. The deadline for exclusion and objection was the 27th of September 2022. The final approval hearing for the California Pizza Kitchen Class Action Lawsuit Settlement is scheduled for November 3rd, 2022. In order to receive settlement benefits, class members must submit a valid claim form by October 27th, 2022. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. Concerns have been raised in Australia, although they would be just as valid here in the UK, about the danger to tenants of their data being leaked or breached whilst it's held by estate agents or real estate agencies in in Australia. The tenants collectively have pointed out that many real estate companies ask for a vast amount of personal information from tenants in order for them to secure their rental property and including sensitive information like passport numbers, bank statements, previous addresses and sometimes even driver's license numbers. 
We take a typical example then to create a tenancy interest application. The estate agent normally asks you to provide a certain amount of points to confirm your identification. This usually consists of your passport, your driver's license and other sources of identification. They also ask for your employer's details, previous addresses, income, bank statements, phone numbers and other sensitive personal information. Of course, if any hacker did gain access to this information, they could use the stolen data to commit further crimes, such as using credit card details for fraudulent purchases, applying for credit cards or loans in your name, accessing retirement funds or other financial accounts, using your health insurance to access medical care, applying for fraudulent identification, such as driver's license or passports, and even renting other properties in your name. There's also a risk that criminals can commit crimes and then use the stolen identification when they're arrested. So what does this mean? What are really important things for estate agents or real estate vendors elsewhere in the world is A, how long do you need to keep that data for? You might need that data to prove the person can afford the rent before you rent the property to them. But once you've rented to them and perhaps they've been in there for six months and they've been paying the rent on time, do you really need to keep all that information anymore? What use is it? And you know, one of the basic principles of GDPR is that data you must have a use for right now. And I think you'd find that a hard one to argue if it was challenged, because let's say, for example, let's suppose I rent a flat for £1,000 a month, and I do that, and for 12 months I've been paying my £1,000 regularly. What the hell difference does it make who my employer is at that point? Because I've proved to you that I can pay the rent. So something perhaps for real estate agents and estate agents to have a think about and as always, if you're an estate agent or you're in the, that industry and you've got other comments, then please do email us at feedback at gdpowerweeklyshow.com and we'll, by all means, look at an updated article later in the year. In episodes 215, 216, 218, we brought you news about the data breach at Optus. Shortly after that data breach, Optus customers were told they would not need a new passport, even though the document may have been compromised in the data breach. However, Optus are now saying that it's not possible for people to use passports for online identification with themselves. Daniel Readers, whose passport was one of more than 100,000 exposed in the Optus hack, had been told that all was well and he did not need to start the process to receive a new passport. However, late on Friday, he was informed he would no longer be able to use his passport online as identification. And Daniel doesn't drive, so his passport was his main identification document. But Optus asked the federal government to block exposed passport numbers from being used in the National Document Verification System. The Document Verification System is used for government departments granting access to health and welfare payments and for banks and other institutions. I was so angry that Optus took that action without consulting the people affected, readers said. If they'd asked me, I probably would have taken the chance with someone using it. I wouldn't have cut off my own identification. More than three weeks after Optus revealed a massive cyber attack and put about 10 million customers at risk, ramifications continue to become clear. Optus said valid passports would be blocked from the DVS for three years past their expiry. There were specific circumstances where customers would be reimbursed to replace their passports, but the process was yet to be formalised. The Australian Passport Office said the move would safeguard customers' personal identification online. Once a customer's Australian passport has been blocked through the DVS, they can still take their passport physically with them to an institution or establishment as proof of identity, they said. The alleged hacker took names, birth dates, phone numbers, addresses, passport, healthcare and driver's licence details. In the confusion and panic after the attack, people queued to replace their compromised documents and the government has now ramped up its efforts to tighten up privacy laws. The Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, said Optus should pick up the tab for new passports and Optus has said it would pay for replacements. On Friday, Optus Chief Executive Kelly Bayer-Rosamin said the right safeguards have been put in place so that no customer who had passport number exposed needed to get a new passport. 
but their existing passports would now no longer be accepted online for crucial administrative tasks. The Department of Home Affairs created a register so that compromised identities would not be used fraudulently. It does that by stopping them being verified through the DVS. However, this means right foreigners will not be able to use them online, the department said in a statement. New credentials issued following the data breach will work as normal. In the interim, impacted individuals should consider using alternative credentials or speak to their service provider that asks for the identification for other options, such as visiting the service provider in person to present the credentials. Readers has now switched to a new telecom company and accused Optus of bad faith. It was sneaky dropping that in my inbox at 4pm on a Friday, he said. We've contacted Optus for a statement, but at the time we're going to broadcast, they've not come back to us. Contact us on helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com. To Australia again now, an Australian online retail marketplace, MyDeal, has confirmed that it was a victim of a data breach that exposed the data of around 2.2 million customers. MyDeal, which is a subsidiary of supermarket chain Woolworths, has confirmed that it would be contacting all those affected by the breach via email, as well as alerting relevant regulatory authorities and government agencies. In a statement, Woolworths said that the breach was caused by a malicious actor using a compromised user's credentials to gain unauthorised access to MyDeal's customer relationship management CRM system. Customer information exposed during the cyber attack included names, dates of birth, phone numbers and email addresses. For 1.2 million customers, the data exposed was limited to their email address. Confidential information like passport, payment card and driver's licence details is not stored by MyDeal and therefore was not exposed in the hack. There's been no risk to compromise of Walsh to group platforms as the MyDeal data network and CRM system is operated on a separate network to its parent company. CEO of MyDeal, Sean Serventin, said... We apologise for the considerable concern that this would cause our affected customers. We have acted quickly to identify and mitigate unauthorised access and have increased the monitoring of networks. We will continue to work with the relevant authorities to investigate the incident and we will keep our customers fully informed of any further updates impacting them. Pietro van der Meer, Group Chief Security Officer at Woolworths, added, Woolworths Group Cybersecurity and Privacy Teams are fully engaged and working closely with MyDeal to support their response. Wished it was a simple guide to GDPR? Well, now there is. GDPR made simple. Available now on Amazon. Another court ruling which has proven useful in establishing the de facto settlement figures for data breaches in the UK emerged this week. In the case of Driver versus CPS, the court awarded £250 as the data breach was at the lowest end of the spectrum, which may indicate where the de minimis threshold for such cases lies, and of course this is often a really hotly contested point in data breach claims. Now we have had previous court rulings in the UK which have been just £100 where there's been no material damage. But I think it's fair to say we're now now establishing a benchmark. Even if we said somewhere between £100 and £250, we're establishing the sort of benchmark that settlements should be at if it's just nuisance rather than material damage. To give a bit of background, a driver versus CPS followed a suite of helpful high court cases which established several key points with rapidly evolving area. These include that mass claims to data breaches require claimants to show that all prospective claimants have the same interest, which the Supreme Court recently held was not met in a claim brought against Google on behalf of 4.4 million iPhone users. That was the case of Lloyd versus Google, which we've covered several times here on the GDPR Weekly Show. That non-statutory data claims, i.e. the breach of confidence and misuse of private information, does not impose a wider general data security duty, nor is there a wider duty of care for negligence claims, as established in Warren v. Ditson Slaws Group, and that speculative distress-only claims may fall under the de minimis threshold and lead to indemnity costs being awarded against the claimants, as in the case of Rolf v. Bleal. 
The cases also indicate that low-risk distressor only data breach claims should be allocated to the small claims track, regardless of the alleged complexity of the issues. This was established in the case of Johnson v. Eastlight. This has key implications for claimant firms as the scope of recovery of often disproportionate costs is very limited, including where claims are funded by after-the-event insurance or for where Part 36 offers have been made. In Driver v. CPS, the claimant was a local politician who had previously been linked to a police operation looking into local government corruption, details of which were in the public domain. Responding to a member of the public's request for an update on the investigation, the CPS stated in an email, a charging file has been referred from the Operation Sheridan investigation team to the CPS for consideration. At this stage, I'm unable to provide you with any more detail. The recipient then sent an email to a small number of third parties, including the media. Whilst not naming Mr Driver, the email the court held sufficiently amounted to a breach of the Protection Act 2018 because it constituted unlawful processing of his personal data. However, owing to the information adding little or nothing to what was already in the public domain, and so it could not have had the effects claimed, the court awarded him only £250. Now, this case does have several distinguishing features. As a matter of concern processing for law enforcement purposes, the applicable regime was under the Data Protection Act 2018 and not GDPR. A claim in misuse of private information failed because the claimant had no reasonable expectation of privacy as the relevant information was already in the public domain. The email added little or nothing to that which was already generally known, and there was no evidence that some recipients even read it. The claimant sought up to £2,000 in compensation, being damages for distress but not for personal injury, and no medical evidence was provided, although the claimant did confirm they had consulted their GP. So these points must give a real clue that where there's only a very modest degree of distress, this data breach was at the lowest end of the spectrum. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. We seem to be spending a lot of time in Australia this week and a major cybersecurity incident has occurred at Medibank Private just weeks after one third of Australians had information how to ransom in the Optus data breach. As one of Australia's biggest health insurance providers, Medibank holds information that includes intimate medical records, making the breach orders of magnitude more serious than the Optus hack. There was another data breach earlier this week of the online wine retailer Vino Mofo, which led to records of 700,000 users being sold on a Russian-language cybercriminal forum. In the wake of the Medibank breach, the cybersecurity minister, Claire O'Neill, warned of a new world under a relentless cyber attack, while Australia's security agencies scrambled to manage the fallout. So what do we know has happened? Well, on the 13th of October, Medibank said it had taken offline the data and policy systems of its budget provider, Arm, and its international student division after a cyber incident. The next day, the company announced it had restored services and was said it was still responding to the incident. The situation developed on Wednesday when Medibank disclosed to the Australian Stock Exchange that hackers had contacted the company to negotiate over the future of 200 gigabytes of customer data they said they'd stolen from company systems. Although Medibank initially claimed there was no evidence that customer data has been accessed, the public learned the start of the breach on Thursday as the Australian Signals Directorate and the Australian Federal Police started to investigate. Medibank is understood to be still investigating what actually happened, but it sought someone then access using fake or compromised user credentials. The hacker shared a sample of 100 policies for verification. This information contains names, addresses, dates of birth, Medicare numbers, phone numbers and medical claims data, including information about diagnosis, procedures and the location of medical services. In a statement, the insurer said the hacker also claimed to hold credit card information, but this has not been confirmed. The sample is believed to come from AHM, 
and containing information about international students who were policyholders. Medibank has about 4 million customers, but at this stage it's not known how many were caught up in this breach. So far, it's been confirmed that international students have been affected, since private health insurance is a requirement when international students come to study in Australia. This is concerning as many students have moved from countries where their medical information could be used against them. Anyone who holds a policy with Medibank should be on notice. Nine newspapers reported the hackers have threatened to release information of the thousand most high-profile Australians if their demands are not met. Medibank's chief executive, David Totzer, has unreservedly apologised for the breach. I apologise and understand this latest distressing update will concern our customers, he said. We have always said that we will prioritise responding to this matter as transparently as possible. Our team has been working around the clock since we first discovered the unusual activity on our systems and we will not stop doing that now. We will learn from this incident and will share our learning with others. Speaking to the ABC on Thursday morning, O'Neill warned Australians of more attacks in the future. This is a new world that we live in, she said. We are going to be under a relentless cyber attack, essentially from here on in. And what it means is that we need to do a lot better as a country to make sure we're doing everything we can within organisations to protect customer data and also for citizens to be doing everything that they can too. O'Neill said the Medibank and Optus breaches amounted to a huge wake-up call that showed the need for an overall of information and privacy protection. If you believe you've been affected, you should of course monitor your credit card and bank statements and, wherever possible, make use of two-factor authentication. If you've got involved in areas where you've needed to use standard contractual clauses, either the EU standard contractual clauses or the UK GDPR standard contractual clauses, you may also have got into the world of binding corporate rules or BCRs. The ICO has made a number of key changes recently that aim to simplify and speed up the UK BCR application process, including revised requirements centred around an outcome and principles-based approach that dispenses with the need to include specific wording, this may allow organisations to better tailor their binding corporate rules to align with their culture and needs. Simplification of the application form itself and the requirements. Changes designed to eliminate the need for unnecessary duplication of information as part of the application process. And the T-list requirements, known as the referential tables, have been simplified and recast. For example, there's now just one core UK referential table, plus an additional annex for those seeking processes binding corporate rules. In contrast, the EU data protection regime would continue to have two entirely separate and more complex referential tables for controller binding corporate rules and processor binding corporate rules. Under the ICO's new approach, a UK BCR will include an application form plus completed referential tables, a binding instrument, this is the mechanism that makes the UK binding corporate rules binding and enforceable both internally and externally by third-party data subjects. The ICO has said it would use the preferred instrument to be an intra-group agreement and a binding corporate rules policy, a document to be made publicly available to inform individuals about how the binding corporate rules will apply to their data and their data rights. The policy must ensure that data subjects understand that they have enforceable rights under the binding corporate rules and internal policies and procedures in support of the binding corporate rules. The UK binding corporate rule regime will continue to distinguish between controller binding corporate rules and processor binding corporate rules. But remember that binding corporate rules by themselves just simply aren't enough. Before binding corporate rules or standard contractual clauses may be used to make a transfer of personal data outside of the UK, a transfer of risk assessment, a TRA, must be undertaken for the specific transfer to ensure appropriate safeguards are in place in the circumstances. TRAs must consider various factors such as the surveillance laws of the destination country. The ICO's updated guidance confirms that UK binding corporate rules do not remove the requirement to conduct a transfer of risk assessment for each transfer. Organisations must regularly review their transfer risk assessments and adjust their UK binding corporate rules to address any risks identified 
and the ICO may audit your transfer risk assessments at any time. Now, of course, a transfer risk assessment in itself can be a complicated process and challenging for many organisations, but the new guidance confirms that transfer risk assessments will not need to be submitted to the ICO as part of the BCR approval process. Organisations with approved BCRs must also ensure that they meet all the various other compliance requirements under data protection law that are not specific to international transfers, i.e. they must be fully GDPR compliant. The main beneficiaries of this change are, of course, organisations seeking only UK binding corporate rules. The ICO's new approach to binding corporate rules differs sharply from the approach taken in the EU, and the ICO has indicated it's not possible to co-mingle UK binding corporate rules and EU binding corporate rules, i.e. you're going to have to create both sets. Companies will therefore have to navigate two different application processes and requirements to obtain both EU and UK binding corporate rules. This may bring further overheads. It also remains to be seen if the ICO's new approach will result in quicker BCR applications. For example, the less prescriptive approach may require the ICOs to spend more time considering the documents submitted. The ICO has said it will keep its approach to UK BCRs under review and will look for opportunities to improve its guidance and BCR processes as we move forward. If you'd like any help with binding corporate rules or investigating whether they could help your organisation, then please do get in touch with us using the contact details, which are coming up right now. Contact us on helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com. We hope that you've enjoyed this week's episode of the GDPR Weekly Show and that you found the information useful and informative. We do really appreciate your feedback, so please do email us at feedback at gdprweeklyshow.com with any comments you might have about the articles we've raised this week, or indeed any suggestions you might have for improvements to the show. The GDPR Weekly Show is a insurance production. Please be advised that any advice given during the show is general in nature and should be not be taken as specific legal advice. You should always seek legal advice according to your own specific circumstances. Until next time, bye-bye.